What is our reaction to sin? How do we react to sin when we see it? Many of you are aware that uh, this week, on Monday, matter of fact, uh, Ministry of Education Ontario released a new curriculum for health and sex ed in our schools. And there's a lot of us who are parents who, well, there's three of us who are parents who have kids going into school in the fall. I'm among them, Chloe starting JK in the fall. We've just finally settled on what school we're sending her to. Yeah, you can kill that, Jay. That's not going to be up this week. Um, So earlier this week, the curriculum itself was released to much fanfare, much consternation, much controversy in the evangelical community, in the church community. I was at the forefront of it. The argument has been going on for weeks, months, almost a year now of what's in this curriculum, who has written it, what does it say, what is it teaching our kids, and what can we do to stop it? And then when the curriculum finally came out, um, it turns out that it wasn't nearly as bad as everyone anticipated it would be. Um, So what happened was I read the 244-page document in its entirety a couple of times, and I, uh, I wrote a blog post on our church. Our blogs typically get 55, maybe 100 views when I write something, generally. Uh, 100 if it really kind of hits a nerve with some people and takes off. So I wrote this, this post, this, just this side-by-side comparison of what people are saying and what the document actually says. And I shared it with people from the church, I shared it with people, you know, pastors I know who are a part of, of VECA or are a part of the OVA, just kind of within our little network of connected churches in the valley. I just shared it with them. I thought maybe it'll be helpful for you as you, you know, pastorally navigate this with your churches and your own families who have kids in school. Um, and then what happened was it took off. As of Sunday night, it had 66,000 views online, uh, and our our um, church, our little church website, um, had 180 some odd comments on it that I had to moderate and respond to. Um, there's not that many that are posted because they're not all going to get posted because some responses were less than charitable. And all of this revolves around one issue that we don't like to talk about. All of this revolves around the existence of the LGBT community. Which you won't catch me saying on a Sunday morning from a pulpit when it's being recorded and going to be posted on a website that has had 66,000 views from mostly non-Christians is you're not going to catch me saying the H word this morning. Because Christians have abdicated their ability and their right to use the H word in how we have responded to sin and how we have reacted to it. So rather than just me talk about what I think and what my opinion is this morning and what my experience has been this week, though I'm sure we'll get to parts of that, um, let's open our Bibles 
and see what God has to say in response to sin and how we are as Christians to respond to sin. So let's go first. Let's do this. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 15. Um, We don't have a PowerPoint this week because I wasn't going to do this until about an hour ago. So I'll give you a chance to get there. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 943. Romans 6, starting in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you are present... If you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves to no one. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you you were committed. And having been set free from sin, You have become slaves of righteousness. So right off the bat this morning, we're talking about people who are slaves to sin. Slaves to it. Slavery exists in this world still. One of the the heartbeat issues of my life now, ever since I've had a daughter, is human trafficking and sexual slavery. It exists in our country, in every major city, Vancouver, Edmonton, uh, um, Calgary, Ottawa, St. John, everywhere. Every major city is a hub for human trafficking in our country. And, and especially where I come from, where I was raised, I learned this recently, the Niagara region is a huge, huge hub for human trafficking because of its proximity to the Great Lakes and because of its proximity to... Um, the canal and the, the the canal and the St. Lawrence, and people get shipped in containers. And let me ask you this: those little girls who are stolen away from their homes and lied to about opportunity and prosperity and are made to live in slavery in 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 this world, do they have a choice but to do what they're told? Do they have a decision when it comes to the sin that they are forced? to commit sometimes at gunpoint. They don't. The Bible says that in our sin, we're slaves. You tie my hands together, and then you tell me to to, to go climb a ladder. I'm not going to be able to do it. You tie my hands together and you, you tell me to go hang up, a, hang up a picture on a wall. I'm not going to be able to do it. You tie my hands to my feet and you tell me to do anything. And I'm not going to be able to do it. People who are not believers, people who are not followers of Christ, people who are not saved by grace through faith are slaves to sin. And more often than not, Christians will condemn them for something they have no control over. Flip over to Romans chapter 12. A couple pages away. Starting in 14.
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Let's back up and go to verse 9, because I'm a big fan of context. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Sorry, don't, yeah, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. I haven't heard a single word of blessing come from the mouth of anyone who calls himself a Christian for our government this week. Not a single word. I've heard the opposite. I've heard condemnation. I've heard hate. I've heard everything but blessing. Are we being persecuted? Maybe. I don't think we're, not if you compare ourselves to those 21 men in orange jumpsuits who were beheaded live on video. But if people in North America want to keep using the term persecution against us, that's fine. Bless those who persecute you. Don't condemn them. This is Romans. A lot of good in the life of the church has come from the book of Romans. 500 years ago, a monk was reading Romans in a, in a tower. And it led to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Romans chapter 10. We're going to be all over the Bible this week. It's not what I normally do, but that's what's going to happen. Romans 10, starting in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. We haven't been preaching good news this week. Not at all. Our feet are not beautiful. We've been preaching condemnation. We've been preaching hate. We've been preaching intolerance. Now, I'm not saying that everything in the curriculum is good. I'm not saying everything in the curriculum is Christian. What I am saying is that we cannot expect a secular government to teach our kids our beliefs. That's our job. My daughter will learn the gospel from my mouth. And from yours. My son will learn that his sin is forgiven in Christ. From me. From you. Our job as Christians, 
Our life as Christians is to live out the Great Commission. To, to, to tell people about the gospel. To tell people the good news that you're, yeah, you're a sinner by nature and choice. Absolutely. No doubt about that. Guess what? There's a way out of that. Guess what? Your punishment has been paid. We sang it this morning. Go to flip, you open up your, your, your hymnals to the very first hymn we sang this morning. What was it? 243? 246. So go to 246 in your hymnals. This was the straw that broke the camel's back for me this morning. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. The reaction we see to sin from the evangelical right, from the Christian right, and from people who open their mouths on places on on television and in media is not soft and it's not tender. It's a hammer and an anvil. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home. Come home. You who are weary, come home. That's not the message we're preaching. The message we're preaching is go away. Go away and let us do what we want. Time now is fleeting. The moments are passing. Passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering. Deathbeds are coming. Coming for you and for me and for them. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe if they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? I don't know. Jesus reacts to sin differently than we do. You see it all over scripture. John chapter 8. Flip back with me. John chapter 8 verse 7. Talking about the woman caught in adultery. And they, this is the uh, scribes and the Pharisees, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, "Let Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Now, who's the only person left in the room that has no sin? Jesus Christ has no sin. And what does he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. The only person in existence who has the authority and the clout to condemn anyone says, neither do I condemn you. Now, he doesn't let her off the hook. Go now and sin no more. So he's, he's acknowledging the sin. Yeah, you were caught in adultery. That is a sin. And that doesn't give you a pass. But I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Um, Luke chapter 5. 
We're going to rapid fire some of these. Chapter 5, verse 20. And when he, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the, this is the man, the, 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 the paralytic who was lowered through a roof. When Jesus saw the faith of his friends, he said to the man, man, your sins are forgiven. It wasn't even the man who had faith. It was his friends who had faith. This is how the Great Commission works. This is how evangelism works. I've had the great blessing and the great honor to see a number of my friends who are not believers when I met them become believers. And I'm not saying this to build myself. I'm not. God has enabled me and blessed me with the chance to see people who aren't believers become believers. And here's how it happened. We were friends, them and I. They lived lives that were not in any, <laughs> by any measure, righteous. And yet, in me, they saw someone who lived differently. In Cody, they saw someone who lived differently. And over time, as our relationship gets a little bit deeper, gets a little bit stronger, gets a little bit better. Over time, God works in their life. He slowly starts to convict them of their sin before they even know he's doing it. We invite them to church. They come to church for a while. They come because we buy them lunch after. They come because we hang out. Whatever the reason is. And eventually, through hearing the word of God, through hearing the gospel preached from scripture, the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin. And now three of my friends, three of our friends that weren't believers are believers now. One of them is in Bible college, wants to be a pastor. And one of them is thinking about going to Bible college because he might... Think about being a missionary or a pastor. If that's not fruit, what is? Here's what we never did. Hey, friend, you're a sinner. Hey, friend, you're living your life wrongly. Newsflash, sinners sin. Sinners will continue to sin. Because they are slaves. Because they have no choice. It's all they know. It's all they have. It's the only way out of pain. This world is broken and it makes us feel empty. And the only th- if the only thing you know is something that makes your body happy, something that makes your flesh happy, even though it leaves you unfulfilled, that's where you're going to go. And God tells us to give them hope, to give them <coughs> A glimpse of something to preach good news, not to preach condemnation. Luke 19. Verse 10. Actually, we'll 
back it up. We'll start at verse 1. Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he went and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. He was a little guy. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place where he was, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half the goods I have I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and he was a tax collector, so he had, I restore it fourfold, four times over. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Two things here. Did Jesus call Zacchaeus on his sin? Did Jesus say anything? Hey, Zacchaeus, you filthy tax collector who defrauds people, I'm going to hang out at your house. No. Jesus didn't condemn Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't call him out on his sin, on on who he was, on what he was doing wrong. He didn't need to. Zacchaeus knows. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's guilty of. The, The Holy Spirit's present and convicting him of that. What does Jesus offer him? Friendship. Companionship. The honor of having a rabbi as a guest in his home. We are today ambassadors of Christ. We are called to do what he did. When's the last time you had an unbeliever in your house? Not to give them a Bible tract, not to tell them that they're living their lives wrong. When's the last time you had an unbeliever in your house because you love them, you care for them, you want them desperately to come to faith in Christ? And you want to be their friend. It's the last time that happened. If I had the opportunity, <laughs> if I had the opportunity, I would invite Liz Sandals and Kathleen Wynn into my home for dinner. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't crack the Bible open to 1 Corinthians, and I wouldn't crack the Bible open to Romans chapter 1, and I wouldn't lecture them. Because if I did that, they'd leave my house and never be, they'd, they'd never come back. And I would never have a chance to tell them about the gospel. And I'd never have a chance to tell them about sinful nature. And I'd never have a chance to tell them that their cross that they are bearing is not theirs anymore. Jesus took it. A couple more points on what sin is. John chapter 8. Verse 34. Actually, we'll start, we'll start in verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We're Jews. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. 
How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We sang this morning that Jesus bears our cross for us, bore our cross for us. He didn't need to. Jesus could have been walking, carrying his cross on his way to Calvary. He could have snapped his fingers and the entirety of the human race would have changed places with him. Millions of crosses and he's the one in the judge's chair. He could have done that. He'd have been right. He could have put that cross on us, but instead he kept it on himself by his own will, by his own desire, because he loves us. Love doesn't ignore sin, absolutely. But our job is not to condemn. That's the judge's job. Our job is to tell people what their defense is, and their defense is Christ. My punishment has been paid. It's double jeopardy now because my punishment has been paid. John chapter 9, a little further on, verse 39 and 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is comparing being a slave to sin here to blindness, to not being able to see. In Jonah, we saw that the Lord in heaven compares people who are sinners to people who do not know their right hands from their left. If I were to take my glasses off and close my eyes and walk down this aisle and someone were to stick their foot out in front of me, I'd fall. I'd fall over. And that's what happens when a sinner sins. A blind person falls. The reaction of the Christian in that situation is not to point, laugh, and say, Hey, guess what, sinner? You fell down because you're a sinner. The reaction of the Christian is to give up of themselves, get down, pick them up, and give them something to wipe their eyes so they can see. And that's the gospel. So as you go through your week, as we leave this place, as you interact with different people who have different opinions about this 
new curriculum and what it means for them and what it means for Christians and how we're being persecuted by it and how they're trying to indoctrinate our kids and how they're trying to make them gay. I ask you this. How are you going to teach your kids? You're the primary educator of your kids. Are you going to get ahead of the curve and teach them about grace and teach them about the gospel and teach them that, yeah, sin exists and it's real and it's slavery and it's blinding and by God's grace, you are part of a family that is saved and so we are telling you as our child how to be saved? Or are you going to point your finger at the blind man who fell down and laughed? Because people notice us. People notice how Christians react to things. I got an email. I wasn't even going to share this. I got an email this morning. It's going to take me a second to get it. From someone, someone who read my article. Not a believer. I'm just going to read it for a little bit, just, just to give you an idea. Dear Pastor Kevin, first off, I want to congratulate you for being, ta- for, take, for, bleh, for being taken on as a voice of reason for your community and for evangelicals on a larger level. When I saw your piece referenced in the Toronto Star, because I was, surprised me too, I thought I'd like to read that. So just so you know, I had to Google Eganville and then find a magnifying glass, Okay. <laughs> Let me pause there for just a second, okay? Because I've said this before. I've said this before. We're a little church. There's how many of us in here this morning? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. There's 20 of us in this room. We're a little tiny church in a little tiny town, okay? 1,300 people. Don't you ever think that we can't have a big impact? Something I wrote for us <laughs> ended up in the Toronto Star. So he has to find a magnifying glass. Coincidentally, it is a local Baptist minister that has been behind much of the negative stir in our community over the new sex ed curriculum. As a parent, before I jumped onto any bandwagon, I wanted to actually read the curriculum myself. After doing so, I came to much the same conclusions you did. Still, I was left feeling concerned and unsettled by the, misre- by the misrepresentation and alarmist presentations by some in our local faith communities. To be transparent, it reminded me of why I and my wife tend to be wary of faith groups. A couple of summers ago, my children were asked, were asked to attend a vacation Bible school by their friend, the daughter of the, pa- the pastor mentioned above. Midweek, my seven-year-old, grade two, came home to me and told me that there were men that married men and that this was disgusting. In the same breath, he told us, sorry, she told us that they were invited to Sunday school each week. Now, first of all, that's a year before the curriculum says that they're going to be teaching this, for the record. That's when I started to realize that there, there are evangelical Christians with their very own, very organized agenda with regard to my children, that, and that I needed to step in and teach our children that what we understand to be a better morality and truth more in line with our own consciences. And he goes on. And without reading the whole thing, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I, I don't think he lines up with my view doctrinally on the issue. 
And I'm not certain, because he doesn't really come out and say it, I'm not certain whether this man is saved or not. I don't know if he's a believer or not. I have no idea. I, I, I don't. Every time I read the email, I come to a different conclusion, so I'm not sure. <laughs> if he's not, if this man is not a believer, if his family is not full of believers, here's what happened. His daughter, who is an unbelieving daughter from an unbelieving family, was invited to a vacation Bible school, maybe by a Christian friend, maybe by this pastor's daughter, so that she could come and learn things of faith, things of the gospel. Okay? The reality that we are sinners, we are fallen, and that Christ came to fix that. What happened is that instead of being taught the gospel, she was taught Christian morality, which is step two. Right? In the Great Commission, here's what happens. Go forth, spread the gospel, baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and then teach them to obey what I have taught you. Now, here's what this VBS did. They flipped it. They put morality in front of the gospel. They put works in front of the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's justification by works. That's everything Protestantism has been fighting for 500 years. That's everything the gospel has been fighting for 2,000 years. And in an instant, it got flipped. And now that family may be further away from faith than they were before. That's the opposite of our mission. Our mission isn't to condemn people, isn't to condemn sinners. Our mission is to give good news. I want to give good news. That's much more fun. Time after time after time after time in Scripture, when Jesus is confronted with a sinner, he shows mercy. He shows grace. He forgives sin. Even if the person doesn't have faith. Like the guy on the mat. He didn't have faith. His friends did. Jesus saw their faith and forgave him. No wonder the Pharisees were upset. I'm surprised evangelical Christians haven't torn that page of their Bibles out because they don't act like, like, like they believe it or they've ever read it. We're going to teach our kids our morality. We're going to teach our kids our beliefs. We're going to teach our kids how to behave. Right? I teach my, my daughter, you know, don't hit your brother. Don't steal things from your brother. And all of that has an, a theological underpinning of don't sin against your brother. Right? But I'm going to teach her grace. I'm going to teach her the gospel. I'm going to teach her good news. I'm going to say, look, you're going to sin. You're going to keep sinning. You're, you're, you're a sinner. My, my, my daughter's three. She's a sinner. My son is 18, 17 months old. He's a sinner. He is. You don't have to teach. Like, I never taught my daughter to be selfish. Right? She learned that on her own because she is by nature a sinner. So I teach her grace. I tell her about Jesus. When I discipline her, I pick her up. I sit her on my lap on the stairs. Why are you here? What did you do? What, why am I disciplining you right now? Whatever, whatever it is. 
you know, she's whining, she's stealing something, she hit her brother, she put, whatever, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, why are you here? What did you do? What should you be doing? Why was that wrong? Okay, we're done with that. Here's grace. I love you. I forgive you. Go repent. Notice that I forgive her before I tell her to repent. And she's not old enough to sit to, I don't say repent because she's still three, so I say go apologize. But as she gets older, that word will change. I forgive her first. Then she apologizes. And that's when the forgiveness becomes effective on her. Jesus forgives everyone. The gospel is for everyone. The cross is sufficient for everyone. It's enough for even people who are not Christians. It's powerful enough for them. It's only effective. It only works on them. It only gets them into the kingdom if they repent. You tracking with that? It's good enough, big enough, strong enough for everyone, but it only, it's only effective if we repent, if we accept the gift of salvation. Our job is not to condemn people and guilt trip them into repenting. Our job is to say, you're already forgiven. You're forgiven. You are. You're forgiven. Just all you've got to do now is accept that forgiveness and lead a life that worships God. And once you accept that forgiveness, we'll start talking about obedience. We'll get there. That's, that's what we call sanctification. That's the rest of your life. But step one is accept that you're a sinner, but you don't have to stay there. You don't have to be a sinner. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this, with a story. When, the summer before we got married, um, I was a camp counselor for a Christian camp. And the week before kind of everyone, the, the camp started, the week before it started, um, they had this, because the goal of the camp is, it's a Christian camp, so we, we, we give the gospel to kids, we talk about Jesus, we do all of that, um, and we want to give them the gospel. To make sure that we all understood as a staff, that we all got what the gospel is, here's what we had to do. On the very last day of camp, there were ten stations. And each of those ten stations had one of the commandments added. Okay? And we were instructed that we go to each of the stations, we read the commandment, we read a little bit about what it is and what it includes, right? And then there's a bowl of little, piece, little bits of string. Okay? And if you've ever committed that sin, you take a bit of the string and you hold on to it. And you go to the next one. And if you've ever committed that sin... You take a bit of the string, you tie it to, to the first piece, now your bit's a bit bigger. Okay. Now, here's how the Ten Commandments work. We're all guilty of all of them. One way or another. Right? Well, I've never c- committed a, a adultery. Have you ever looked at a woman who's not your wife? Twice? Yeah. Pick up the string. Okay? Well, I've never made an idol of God. I've, I've n- never had any other gods before the Lord. Yes, you have. You don't have to carve it out of stone. You don't have to carve it out of gold. Anytime you put something else, someone else, your own desires ahead of God, you've, you've, you've sinned against the, 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 the first commandment. So pick up the piece of string. So here's what happened. By the end of the, of, of the walk, through all ten stations, just about everyone there had all ten pieces of string. 
right? A few of them had seven or eight. Just about everyone had all ten. So we get to the gazebo in the middle of, of this, this kind of course that we had set up. And they, they say, you, you can't, during this whole time, you can't speak a word. You don't speak a word. So we get to the gazebo, and there's a sign. Give your string to whoever the person was that was there. So we gave them the string. They tied our hands together with our own string, with our own sin. They tied our hands together. And they told us to walk. There was a, there was a big cross in the back 40 of the camp. So they tie our hands together in this red thread, this red string. And they tell us to walk to the cross. So we all walk. It, you're, you're in silence. There's different people at different stages. And every, if you see people walk, walking around. You see some people going. And when you got to the cross... There's a chair with a sign on it that said this, it is finished. And on the chair was a pair of scissors. And at the foot of the cross was piles and piles and piles and piles of thread. We are called to be instruments of grace. We are called to hold the scissors and to help people cut the sin that binds their wrists. What we're not called to do, what we're never called to do, and what we will be judged for doing if we do it, is tying it tighter. So as you interact with people who disagree with me on this, interact more with Jesus. Take the example of Jesus in his life, how he reacted to sinners in grace, in peace, in forgiveness, and take that into your life. And don't point fingers and laugh at the blind guy who fell down. Let's pray.